Chapter 6 of One Thing Needful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One Thing Needful by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 6 Out of Sight, Beyond Light, At What Goal May We Meet? It was Midsummer Day and Stella was eleven years old, an ever-memorable anniversary in that young life, so sweet in its summer dawn, so fatal before sundown. Lady Lashmar was in London, Victorian was at Oxford. He had hardly spent three months at the castle during those six years in which Stella had dwelt there, and he had exchanged scarcely a dozen words with her. He had exaggerated his mother's prejudices against the orphan, and avoided her as if she had been a toad. Lashmar and his protégé had their little world all to themselves, save for their devoted slave, Gabriel Verner, who still hovered on the brink of publication, the manuscript of his great book still virgin, unsoiled by the finger-marks of the compositor, and who still forecast with terror the day in which the world should ring with his name and cabinet ministers insist upon making his acquaintance. Stella's birthday had been always made in some wise a festival by her adopted father. He wanted the child to lack none of those childish pleasures which fathers and mothers give their children. She was in after years to recall no deprivation, no loss of privilege or pleasure, and this year he felt more than usually anxious to do honor to her birthday. The time was drawing near when this happy Arcadian existence, this easy-going education at her benefactor's feet, must needs be changed for a more conventional form of life. The time was coming when Stella must be handed over to feminine care, in order that she might learn the ways and the accomplishments of women. It would have pleased Lashmar to have carried out his work to the end, to have seen his protégé grow up to ripening womanhood under his care to have taught her all things that she was ever to learn, to have created in her a spiritual twin-sister, a second self, the sweet companion and consolation of his loveless days. But regard for her interests, the fear that he might create the modern monster, the philosopher in petticoats, made him hesitate. While Gabriel Verner's suggestion, that in days to come scandal might cloud the relations of protector and protected, was not without weight with him. He made up his mind to seek out some tranquil and happy household, some perfect woman nobly planned, in whose fostering care Stella might develop into enlightened and graceful womanhood. And then, and then, in the days to come she might still be his companion and friend, again live under his roof and brighten his days the first to bid him good morning, the last to say good night. She would marry, perhaps. Yes, that would be best for both of them. She might anchor herself in marriage to some mild young cleric, who could be Lashmar's chaplain, so that husband and wife might live together under his roof. He saw himself in that far future smiling upon Stella's children, finding a new star in some baby girl who would sit at his feet and listen to him in wide-eyed wonder, just as Stella had done. Surely his age would not be loveless or lonely. This waif snatched out of the fire would be to him a wellspring of love. 
His life had not been all brightness since Stella had dwelt within his walls. Those sensitive nerves of his, sensitive to cold, to heat, to fatigue, to pleasure even, had been racked many and many a day. The old agony of pain, the old weariness of prostration, had been his again and again. But in every new interval of suffering he had found a growing sweetness in Stella's sympathy. The child had a sense of pity and love far beyond her years, a power to comprehend suffering rarely found even in a woman. She would sit by her benefactor's couch for hours, silent, watchful. She knew every expression of the sufferer's tortured brow, and could mark those intervals of respite in which he liked to talk, and in which it was good for him to have his thoughts diverted into new channels. Her little feet moved lightly over the carpet, her little hands were as gentle as rose-leaves falling upon grass. Before she was eight years old, she acquired a deafness which made her ministrations pleasanter than those of the most experienced woman-servant in the castle. She could pour out a dose of medicine or mix a tumbler of lemonade with unerring precision. She was Lashmar's chief nurse in all his illnesses, which, being for the most part of a nervous character, involved no degrading office for nurse or attendant. Gabriel Verner was Stella's subordinate in the sick-room, and was quite as gentle as a woman. Lord Lashmar generally breakfasted in his study, when her ladyship was away, and at such periods Verner and Stella always breakfasted with him. The breakfast-hour was nine, and Lashmar often spent an hour in the garden before breakfast, sometimes alone, but more often with Stella for his companion. She was with him this morning, proud in the repetition of her first Greek verb. She had been learning Latin for more than a year, and could recite bits of the bucolics with perfect intonation and precision, but Greek had been begun within the last few weeks, and Stella was intensely interested in the beginning of a language which she had been taught to consider the grandest tongue that the peoples of this earth had ever spoken. Had not Homer recited his wondrous tale of Troy in those sonorous syllables? Stella knew the story of Troy as well as other children know the story of Red Riding Hood. Stella repeated her verb in its innumerable tenses with very few mistakes, and won a kindly word of approval from Lashmar. Most little girls at your age would be learning French instead of Greek, he said. But, as there is nothing in the French language equal to Homer or Plato, I would rather you should learn Greek first and French afterwards." They went into breakfast together. Mr. Verner was in the study waiting for them, with his notebook and pencil in his hand, going over a passage in his book. He wrote his manuscript in small scraps, which he revised and rewrote again and again, carrying the little book about with him wherever he went, poring and pondering over every paragraph, every phrase. And by this laborious method, he had contrived to attain an English style which read like a literal translation from Hegel or Schopenhauer. The table was bright with flowers, old English silver and old English china. A large dish of strawberries showed crimson against a background of tea-roses in a great Japanese bowl. The substantials were all upon a side-table. Lashmar was wont to breakfast lightly, on new-set eggs and strawberries and cream, in this summer weather and Stella cared only for crisp light rolls and fruit and cream. 
it was Mr. Verner whose fine appetite did justice to the good things on the side-table. Stella gave a cry of surprise and rapture as she took her seat. Upon her folded napkin lay a glittering golden watch, with a slender chain coiled round it like a serpent. The back of the watch was enameled, and on the enamel appeared the initial S, surmounted by a star in tiny brilliance. "'Oh, what a beautiful watch!' she cried. "'Whose is it?' "'Yours, Stella. You are so precise in giving me my medicine when I am ill that I am sure you know the value of time. So I thought you would like to have a timekeeper of your own.' Stella ran to him and threw her arms round his neck and kissed him. "'How good you are to me! You are always giving me pretty things. But a watch! I never thought I should have a watch, like a grown-up person.' "'You are more thoughtful and more exact than many grown-up persons, Stella. You deserve to own a watch.' "'I will be very, very careful of it,' said the child earnestly. She had often handled Lashmar's watch had worn it for a week at a time when he was ill, so she was not afraid to open this one. She read the inscription inside. To Stella, from her adopted father, Lashmar, Midsummer Day, 1872. "'That is the best of all,' she said. "'I shall always love the watch for my adopted father's sake.' They were to start upon an excursion soon after breakfast, an excursion planned in honour of the day. Fifteen miles from Lashmar Castle there were the remains of a medieval abbey, extensive ruins, in a very fine state of preservation, and situated in a beautiful country. Landale Abbey was one of the places that everybody went to see, and it afforded an admirable excuse for a picnic. Lashmar knew every stone among the ruins, every wild flower and lichen that grew in the interstices of the stones and clothed the old walls with beauty but he was never weary of Langdale Abbey, and he told himself that there could be no pleasanter way of spending the day than in a drive to Langdale. He had lately bought a pair of horses, of which he was particularly proud, fine, upstanding bays, an exact match in color, size, form, action, and pace, a pair of horses which would have attracted every eye in Hyde Park, but which were hardly noticed in the neighborhood of Lashmar Castle, where it was an understood thing that Lord Lashmar always drove the finest cattle. He was so rich and had so few ways of spending his money that it seemed only right he should pay high prices for his horses. He was an admirable whip, firm, temperate, with light hands and an unerring eye. He loved horses, and horses loved him. These bays were fine, honest animals, and reported to be as quiet as sheep. Lord Lashmar had driven them three or four times, and had found them irreproachable. He would never have risked Stella's safety by placing her behind dangerous animals, nor would he have imperiled the grey hairs of his faithful old tutor. The picnic baskets were packed into the phaeton in the stable-yard, and at eleven o'clock the carriage came round to the porch. Stella was ready in the hall, beaming with happiness the great dark eyes shining out of the shadow made by her broad-brimmed hat. Her short-waisted white frock, broad blue sash, and long, wash-leather gloves made her look like one of Reynolds's children. Indeed, with her dark eyes and thick hair, cut straight across her brow, 
she had always a look of Reynolds's portraits. The aristocrat old rector of Lashmar used to pat her on the head condescendingly and call her my Reynolds girl. He was a good man, after his fashion, which was narrow. He could not see any merit in bringing up one orphan in the lap of luxury. He would have had the cost of Stella's maintenance given to some orphanage where it might have been distributed in the shape of thick bread-and-butter and, and hobnailed boots among many children. Lashmar's benevolence seemed to him as the costly box of ointment seemed to Judas, a lavish, unreasoning expenditure. He was always ready to echo Lady Lashmar's reprobation of her stepson's folly. Yes, no doubt he was preparing trouble for himself in the future. The girl must eventually become an incubus. Stella took her seat beside Lord Lashmar in the Phaeton, Gabriel Verner mounted behind, and the groom leapt lightly into his place when the horses were in full motion, deeming that his dignity would have been compromised by mounting a moment sooner. The bays went with a certain springiness, which told Lashmar they were very fresh. "'Were these horses exercised yesterday?' he asked of the groom. "'No, my lord, not yesterday. Smiles knew your lordship wanted them for a journey.' "'Were they out the day before?' "'No, my lord. Smiles thought the weather was too bad.' The bays were going splendidly, with no hint of running away but they were very eager and wanted to go at the top of their pace. Lashmar kept them well in hand, and they bowled merrily along the high road outside the castle. They had fifteen miles before them. "'What nice horses!' said Stella, enjoying the pace. "'Do you like them better than Pyramus and Thisbe?' "'Pyramus and Thisbe are darlings, but these go faster, don't they?' "'Yes, they are going faster today.' They had driven three or four miles in the morning sunshine, between hedgerows full of eglantine and honeysuckle, past a picturesque Middleshire village, with its tumble-down, half-timbered cottages in black and white, its untidy straw yards and mouldering barns. The horses were well in hand as Lashmar drove past the little cluster of humble dwellings, and the inn with its blurred old sign and dripping horse-trough. The village seemed for the most part the abode of sleep or death, for all the men were in the fields and all the children were at school. But here and there a woman looked out at her door and admired Lord Lashmar's horses, the light phaeton, the groom's smart livery, and the pretty child in her white frock and straw hat. About a hundred yards from the village the road made a sharp curve and Lord Lashmar saw himself face to face with that which might mean danger. A traction-engine in full cry, snorting, panting, groaning, a traction-engine serving as a tug for a huge wagon of hay which loomed large above it. A wagon which should have been drawn by sleek and placid cart-horses, with plated manes and decorative network flapping over their honest foreheads. The groom stood up and uttered one of those inarticulate cries which are as a common language of the stable. The men in charge of the engine tried to abate the fury of their monster. Too late. The horses were in that condition of freshness which would have made them bolt at a feather. They were off in an instant, all their reserve force in full action. "'Sit firmly, for God's sake, Stella,' said Lashmar, and then to those behind. "'Werner!' Keep your seat whatever happens. 
John, try to hold Miss Stella. The groom wound his arm round the child's waist. She was looking at Lashmar's face, silent, awe-stricken. How pale he was, and how tightly his lips were set! Yet he did not look frightened, only grave, intent, anxious. "'Are we all going to be killed?' she asked tremulously. "'We are in God's hands, my darling,' he answered. There was no time for more. The danger was close upon them. Had there been a clear road, the bolting of the horses would have been as nothing with such a whip as Lashmar. But the road was narrow, and they had to pass that huge bulk of the hay-wagon and the engine. The drivers were dragging their load as far as they could towards the hedge, but there was little time for this, with those frightened horses tearing along at a mad gallop. Lashmar was holding them firmly, keeping them fairly straight. But just as they neared the engine it gave one final snort. The off-horse swerved, the pole snapped, and both horses fell in a heap, dragging the phaeton over in their fall. Black night closed over Stella's dreams, ending this birthday of hers in deepest darkness before it was noon. After that sudden extinguishment of the actual world, there came one long dream of horror. One long dream, a dream without awakening, yet a vision so entangled that it was, as it were, many dreams within one dream. Not once in that long labyrinth of unreality did the child recognize the realities around her. Not once did her senses emerge from that world of phantoms, and the burden of shadows that thronged about her bed—terrible shadows, some of them, haunting shapes from the realm of legend and poetry, Agamemnon in his bloody bath, Achilles with the corpse of Hector tied to his chariot. There was one dream in which she was Hector, dead and bleeding, dragged to the Grecian ships, the grit and dust were in her throat and choked her. The thundering hoofs of those fiery horses deafened her, and she was dead yet sentient. All her studies and stories and happy fancies of the past personified themselves in those everlasting hours of delirium, a period in which hours were exaggerated into ages, and a day seemed an eternity. Her first Greek verb, her lessons from Virgil, her scraps of science, her childish knowledge of the heavens, all the things she had learned became a torture to her. She was a star in the constellation of Cassiopeia's chair, shining with her sister-stars in the cold November sky. Oh, how remote and how cold it was in that far world of night and darkness! How dreadful to be parted forever from her friend and father! She could see the world she had left a little spot in the immensity of the universe below her, one little spot, faintly luminous, like a glow-worm in a hedge. And there was one speck of brighter light in that dim world, an electric spark, no bigger than a pin's point, which she knew was Lashmar's soul. It shone like a star in that distant earth, brighter than all the other souls of humanity, because he was the kindest and noblest man upon the earth. Like Christ, she said to herself. She had often told herself in her childish simplicity, unconsciously irreverent, that he was like Christ. And now her agony was the thought of an impassable gulf between her benefactor and herself. She strained, she struggled to pass that black abyss. She stretched out her arms as if they were wings. 
Sometimes they seemed to her as wings, and carried her for a long way, whirling onward in darkness. But that glow-worm spot in the far distance came no nearer to her straining eyes. That gulf was infinite and impassable. "'Never to see him again,' she moaned. "'Never to see him again. Too far, too far!' And honest Betsy, who sat beside her bed sewing, wondered that the child, who had never recovered her senses since the accident, should have this instinctive consciousness of an irreparable loss. At last there came an interval in that agony of delirium. The throng of spectres was clouded over by a gracious darkness. The weary arm ceased to strain towards that unattainable point. The burning lids fell over the aching eyeballs. A deep and healing sleep followed that feverish unrest, and the patient woke to know the kindly face of her nurse for the first time in ten long days and nights of fever. She saw the sunshine of a summer afternoon streaming in at her window. "'Is it my birthday?' she asked simply. "'Why didn't we go to Langdale Abbey?' And then, sitting up in her bed, very weak and white and wan, she stretched out her tremulous hands and asked, "'Where is my watch?' "'Here, darling,' answered Betsy, taking the watch out of a Morocco case on the dressing-table, delighted to gratify her patient. "'There's your pretty watch. Oh, my, isn't it a pretty one? And ain't you lucky to have a watch, just like a grown-up young lady?' The weak little hands wavered as they took the watch, the exhausted frame sank helplessly on the bed, but the child held the watch before her eyes all the time and the tremulous fingers contrived to open the case. "'Read it,' she said faintly, and Betsy spelled out the inscription. "'To Stella, from her adopted father Lashmar. Oh, isn't it beautiful!' exclaimed Betsy, and then she began to cry, and cried a deluge, as young women of her class usually can, seeming to have a better supplied reservoir of tears than the highly cultured. "'Don't cry,' said Stella. "'There's nothing to cry for.' She had forgotten the dream of the star, the pitiless abyss between her and Lashmar, the sense of everlasting severance. She lay for some minutes looking at her watch, holding it in both hands, as if it were too heavy for one. Then she put it to her ear and found that it was mute. "'A quarter to twelve, she said. Why did it stop at a quarter to twelve? Again Betsy dissolved into tears. "'Shush, dear,' she murmured, patting Stella's shoulder. "'Go to sleep, my pet, till the doctor comes to see you. Let Betsy put the pretty watch under your pillow.' "'I don't want to sleep any more. I want to get up and be dressed. You know, it's my birthday, and I am to be all day with Lord Lashmar. How late the sunshine looks! like afternoon. Have I overslept myself?" "'You have been very, very ill, dear,' answered Betsy, in a soothing, preachy-preachy tone, which is peculiarly exasperating to an intellectual child. "'You are much too weak to get up. You shall have your brand's essence presently and a nice little bit of toast.' "'But it's my birthday,' urged Stella, "'and I am to dine with his lordship.' My poor pet, 
Your birthday was ten days ago, a week before the funeral,' answered Betsy. The word was spoken unawares. That awe-inspiring, much-discussed event of the funeral, a stately and imposing ceremonial, including all the dismal grandeur of the old school and all the floral decorations of the new, had been in everybody's mouth at Lashmar Castle for the last six days. It was the standard by which time was reckoned. "'What funeral?' cried Stella, starting up in her bed with a scared look. She was so weak that cold drops broke out upon her brow in the agitation of this question. Poor Betsy was at her wit's end. "'Go to sleep, pet,' she pleaded. "'The doctor wouldn't like you to talk so much. Lie down and go to sleep, lovey.' But even these endearments failed to soothe the perturbed spirit. "'What funeral?' repeated Stella. "'Is anybody dead?' Betsy only patted her shoulder dumbly, with streaming eyes. "'Who is dead? Not Mr. Verner? Oh, he was so good to me! He is not dead, is he?' "'No, dear, no. Mr. Verner is quite well. He wasn't hurt at all, poor dear gentleman,' answered Betsy. "'He wasn't hurt? Who was hurt, then? Was anybody hurt?' cried Stella, her eyes assuming the wild look they had had in delirium. "'You were hurt, my poor precious. You fell on your dear little head.' Stella gave a scream and flung her arms round Betsy's neck. Memory returned in a flash. "'The horses!' she cried. "'Yes, I remember. Oh, those dreadful horses! Lord Lashmar drove so well, but I thought we were going to be killed. He was not hurt, was he? Ask him to come to me. I want to see Lord Lashmar. Directly, directly!" These large dark eyes of hers were growing wilder and wilder. They looked unnaturally large in the small, pale face, sorely shrunken from its childish plumpness during the wasting agony of that ten days' fever. She tried to get out of bed, pushing aside Betsy's restraining arms. "'Ask Lord Lashmar to come to me. Let me go to Lord Lashmar." "'Lord Lashmar is out, love,' said the frightened Betsy. "'Lord Lashmar has gone to Brom for the day on particular business.' It was true. Betsy felt she had satisfied her charge and saved her soul from the burden of a lie. It was literal truth which she had spoken, and yet, for Stella, it was not the truth. For Stella, it was a miserable, mocking lie. She was not satisfied, but lay back upon her pillows too exhausted to struggle. She lay moaning. "'I want to see Lord Lashmar. When will he be back? Oh, when, when, when!' She sobbed herself into a feverish, restless slumber, and she was delirious again that night. The doctor was much concerned when he came to see her in the evening and was told how she had recovered her senses for a little while, only to lose them again. "'Did you tell her anything?' he asked. "'Not a word,' answered Betsy. "'She wanted to see Lord Lashmore dreadfully, but I told her he was out for the day, and she seemed to believe me. But she made herself very unhappy about him. She was so fond of him, poor dear, and well she might be.' "'Ah, well, indeed.' said the doctor, shaking his head. "'I'm afraid she has seen the best days of her life, poor little thing.' 
Mr. Stokes was a kind, simple soul, who had lived all his life in the village of Avondale, just a mile from the much smaller village of Lashmar, a pretty little cluster of houses on the bank of the river, nestling round an old Saxon church that seemed much too large for its surroundings. Mr. Stokes knew everybody in the neighborhood, and had known the younger generation from their cradles. He was a skillful surgeon, and was tolerably shrewd in his diagnosis, though he seldom went farther afield than Brum, and had not seen much of the great city since he was a student at Bartlemy's. He knew all about Stella and Lady Lashmar's feelings with regard to her. "'I am afraid she is in for a relapse,' he said after he had taken her temperature. "'A hundred and five three-fourths. That looks bad. You must do all you can to keep her quiet.' Give her Bran's essence and a teaspoonful of brandy with a little yolk of egg alternate half-hours. You'll have to sit up with her again to-night." "'I don't mind that,' said Betsy. "'I don't mind anything except hearing her ask for Lord Lashmar.' The doctor was right. Stella re-entered the land of phantoms. This time her worst dream was of a vast and sunless swamp, such a swamp as that she had read about far across the Atlantic the great dismal swamp, where never tree or flower flourished, a place of desolation, impassable, exhaling poisonous odors, brooded over by dark clouds, a semi-darkness worse than night. And she was waiting in that swamp forever and forever, weary to agony, the dull agony of aching bones and burdened brain. Far, far away, a vanishing point in remotest distance, there was a speck of light, the same speck she had seen on the far earth when she was a star, and that light was Lashmar. She was perpetually trying to reach that distant point, weighed down forever by the sense of utter impossibility, yet obliged to try. The agonizing dream seemed to endure for ages. Long nights of repetition, in which Betsy hovered over her charge with cup or teaspoon, forcing her doses of nourishment between the parched hot lips, with a persistence that seemed sheer brutality. But that very tangible presence of the buxom Betsy had no effect upon the visionary world in which Stella dwelt. The dim and distant light was always there, glimmering faintly across the wide grey waste in the perpetual twilight. Perhaps it was the faint gleam of the night-light in the remotest corner of the room which suggested that distant ray shining across the dull grey level of dreamland. It was in the night that the goblin crew rode rampant over that distracted brain. The days passed for the most part in a kind of stupor. The patient lay helpless, apathetic, recognizing no one, caring for nothing, in a state of semi-consciousness which was neither sleeping nor waking. From such a condition as this, she was aroused by the howling of a summer storm in the great oaks, and the sharp rattle of the rain against the casement. The sky was cold and grey. Stella knew not if it were morning or afternoon. Memory was a blank again. She had forgotten all that had happened since her birthday, had forgotten the accident which had made that day fatal. This time Betsy was not at hand to be questioned. It was between four and five o'clock, and Betsy had gone down to tea, had gone to expatiate upon the storm to her fellow-servants, 
who were all wont at such times to wish that they lived in London, where thunder and lightning would seem comparatively harmless amidst the cheerfulness and sense of protection afforded by crowded streets and policemen. The thunder and lightning were over, or Betsy would not have left her charge. Stella looked about the room wonderingly, slowly coming back from dreamland, slowly realizing the facts of the external world. Yes, it was her own room. There were all those ornaments and knick-knacks which children speak of comprehensively as pretty things. The silver casket on her dressing-table, the scent-bottles, the china monsters, the bright-colored pilgrim bottles from that legendary eastern world of which she had heard and learnt so much, the cradle of mankind, the well-filled bookshelves, the dolls and dolls' house. But these last had been degraded from their high estate to an obscure corner, things to be ashamed of, that one could ever have been so babyish as to care much about them. Yes, it was her own room, that lightsome, airy chamber, high up among the treetops and the swallows. It was her nest, in which she had been as free and happy as the birds of the air, more tenderly cherished than ever nestling by parent bird. The door leading into the sitting-room was half open, and there were people talking. She had heard their voices amidst the rattle of the rain and the bluster of the storm. "'Shall you send her away?' asked a manly voice, rich and full, a voice that was not altogether unfamiliar. It was like her benefactors, but stronger, fuller. "'No, I shall keep her here. I consider that a sacred duty, for poor Hubert's sake. But I shall try to repair his sad mistake in the manner of rearing her.' I shall bring her up as a child of the lower classes ought to be brought up. I shall train her to be useful, a breadwinner among a class of breadwinners." Too well did Stella know this second voice. These were the sonorous tones of that terrible personage whom she had met from time to time in the corridors or in the gardens, and who had always scowled at her and passed her by in haughty silence. She knew the face and figure to which the voice belonged, the tall and stately form, the strongly marked brows and aquiline nose. Rather rough upon her, poor little wretch, after having been so pampered. That is poor Hubert's fault, not mine, replied her ladyship coldly. Well, it was one of those silly things which your very clever men are apt to do, said the other voice. I took an intense dislike to the brat from the hour poor Lash brought her home, like some strayed mongrel and not half so interesting. If I were you, I should clear her out of the castle as soon as she is well enough to budge. Pack her off to one of those innumerable institutions for rearing up beggar brats, in the fear of their spiritual pastors and masters upon sound conservative principles. You'll get rid of a nuisance and there will be a better chance of her making a good housemaid than if she is allowed to stay here, where she'll always remember Lashmar's idiotic indulgence. "'I have told you that I mean to bring her up under my own eye,' replied her ladyship in a terrible voice. She was a woman who could not brook contradiction, and would not endure to have her will gainsaid or her wisdom questioned. Least of all could she endure such questioning from her own son. She was a woman who loved to govern, 
and to whom the idea of domineering even over such a helpless waif as Boldwood's daughter was very pleasant. "'I shall bring her up under my own eye,' she repeated. "'I shall see that she is taught properly, and that above all she learns to forget her foolish childhood, and to understand her position as a friendless orphan, who must learn to earn her daily bread.' "'A friendless orphan?' repeated Stella in a faint whisper. Of whom were they talking? she asked herself. Could it be of her? She remembered how once, when old Mr. Verner was expatiating upon Lashmar's goodness, he had told her that were it not for that generous benefactor, she would have been a friendless orphan. And now her ladyship was talking about a friendless orphan, who had been brought up foolishly. She will have to begin a new life as soon as she gets well. As soon as she gets well," repeated Stella. Yes, it was of her they were talking. They had got her into their power somehow, those two enemies. They were going to alter her happy life. They would take away her Greek grammar, perhaps, stop that new study of which she was so proud, and which had seemed to bring her nearer to Lashmar. He had talked to her of the time when they would be able to read Homer together. Oh, where was Lashmar? Why did he not come and stop their cruel talking? She clasped her hands in an agony of despair. She called out in a faint scream, too weak to cry aloud, as it were struggling in a nightmare dream. Lord Lashmar! Lord Lashmar! A face, a bright young face, handsome as Apollo's, looked in at the door only for a flash. It gave way in the next instant to the stern countenance of the dowager. "'Are you awake, child?' she asked. "'Please, ask Lord Lashmar to come to me,' cried the girl piteously. "'What do you want with Lord Lashmar? Lie down, child. You are too weak to sit up yet a while. I'll send Betsy to you. No, no, I don't want her. I want Lord Lashmar. I shall go mad if I don't see him.' The dowager seated herself in Betsy's vacant chair by the bed, an awful figure, stern and terrible as fate itself. She was clad from top to toe in black, densest black, not that rich and glittering raiment in which Stella had often seen her of old, a costly combination of satin and brocade, sparkling and flashing with tremulous fringes of jet. This was a gown of some dull fabric which reflected not a ray of light. To her very chin Lady Lashmar was swathed in black crepe, and black crepe is to a child's eye of all fabrics the most hideous. "'You cannot see your benefactor, Lord Lashmar,' said the stern voice. "'You will never see him again. Cannot you understand what this black gown of mine means?' "'He is dead!' shrieked the child, and then remembering that ominous word dropped unawares by Betsy. It was his funeral. Yes, my unhappy child, your benefactor was killed in the accident from which you narrowly escaped with your life. The loss for you is a bitter one in the present, although it may be a blessing to you in the future. My stepson's foolish indulgence might have been your ruin, here and hereafter. Stella heard not a word of this little sermon. She had cast herself on her pillow and was sobbing out her heart in the passionate, hopeless grief of childhood.
dead. She had never thought that he could die. Dead! How often he had talked to her of what would happen when he was an old man, how she was to be the companion of his declining years, the compensation for all his losses. Dead! Never more to look upon her with those thoughtful eyes, never more to speak to her in that low, tender voice, never more to touch her with that hand whose gentle touch upon her head had always seemed a benediction. "'My angel, my friend, my father!' she cried. "'O oh God, be good to me, and let me die too!' That was her prayer at morning and nightfall for many a day to come. End of chapter 6